It's a joy to see you guys. Uh, this is my first time to be a guest speaker to Southwood College. So if you've been attending here for the last month for the first time, my name is Trey Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, but for you guys who have been here for a while, it is a joy to get to jump back in with you guys. Kevin is at right now. He's at uh, their spring youth retreat, wrapping up his youth ministry responsibilities. And so I am jumping back in for him and getting to jump back in with you guys. Missed you guys already, even for just a month, but it's fun to get to jump back in. Well, we're going to continue in on the series of the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, as you guys are turning there, I'll tell you guys, we had some really good friends of ours who, when they first got married, they moved to the Clear Lake area near Houston. Some of you guys might be from that area. I was there about a month ago with my boy uh, who was getting to see the whole NASA experience and has kind of moved from pirates and boats to astronauts and rockets, and that's his whole thing now, all right? But these friends had moved to the Clear Lake area and were trying to meet people, were trying to kind of step into the community, and they got invited to a St. Patty's Day party. And so they thought this was going to be their grand interest, their big moment to meet a bunch of people and to kind of enter into the scene and be known and know a bunch of people. And so they decided to go for it with this costume-themed party. My friends are pretty wild, pretty, pretty fun, pretty ambitious. And so the guy decided he was going to go full-out leprechaun, okay? Hat, jacket, green leggings, which tights as a man, which is not a good thing, okay? Uh, shoes and whatnot. And so they go all out for this deal, and they end up having, because of the complexity of the outfit, they end up being late to the party. They're one of the last ones there. And so they open the door, expecting to see a room filled of fun, costume-themed St. Patty's Day people, and there's not one person dressed up whatsoever. Not one, except for a baby with something green on, and that was it, all right? And so here they are in their grand entrance, coming into the scene, wanting to know and be known, and they come out full bore, and there's not one single person who's dressed up, and this was not the kind of entrance into the community they were hoping for, right? Everyone just kind of looked at them, they complete, the party just completely died down, and there was just silence, and there was awkwardness, and it was not at all the vision they had. They had a vision entering into community, and all of a sudden, hoping what this community was going to be, it didn't turn out anything like that. Have you ever been in that place before where you had a vision of what a community could be, but you found yourself absolutely all alone as this only person in a community that had that same vision, and no one was rallying around that vision, no one was going with you whatsoever? Well, that's what happened to my friends in the Clear Lake area. The question will be what's going to happen to Nehemiah. Last couple of weeks, you guys have seen that Nehemiah had a heart that was aligned with God's purpose. It fit with God's passions. You guys saw last week that he had a, a vision that was fulfilled and commissioned, not just by God, but by a pagan king. And so Nehemiah is sent off. And what we're going to find in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, is that Nehemiah is going to show up and he's going to arrive in Jerusalem for this critical moment. Let's pick it up in verse 11. And what we're going to see, I think it's going to be absolutely surprising because Nehemiah's first response here, the first thing that he does is going to surprise you. It did me. Notice chapter 2, verse 11. Notice where our text opens as Nehemiah says, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. As Nehemiah shows up with a vision and a commission and a view of what could be, he shows up in the city where it's going to be enacted and fulfilled. And what does he do for three days? Nothing. Nothing at all, right? He doesn't come in like gangbusters. He doesn't come in blowing things up and building walls and whatnot. He just comes in, and according to the text, three days, nothing. 
Notice verse 12, and I arose in the night and I and a few men with me and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which was on, on which I was riding. And so I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, which I would hate to be there, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. And so I went up by night by the ravine and I inspected the wall. And then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as of yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. First five verses of Nehemiah 2 Nehemiah has a vision. He has a commission from a king who said, I want you to go and do this. I want you to go back to your homeland, gather your people and rebuild the walls. And he gets back. And for the first three days, the text says he does essentially, I don't know what he's doing. And then after that, he begins to go out repeatedly at night and he's observing. It's interesting as we look at Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem, the first thing that he does, we're going to see is that he's going to be one who experiences the problem. Remember, Nehemiah had a vision, he had a passion, he had a burden for what was happening to his people and in his city and to the walls. And so he goes, he's bought in, he's all in, right? But as he arrives, it's so fascinating to me, the first thing he does is he arrives in the city with his people is he just observes. It doesn't say a word to anyone. Why? I think Nehemiah realized that the kind of communities that change cultures are the kinds of communities that first can identify with a community because they can experience the problem. Did Nehemiah know what was broken? Yes. But did he know it from the outside only? Yes. And so now he arrives as an insider back to his place, to his town, and he inspects the situation and he just experiences it for himself. He slows himself down. One of the key things I think we learned from Nehemiah here in chapter two is that grand entrances are rarely effective. That if you have a vision for your city, if you have a vision for the community, if you have a vision for our state or our country, and you want to see cultural change, I'll tell you this, grand entrances onto that scene and into that community are rarely effective. In fact, my friends who moved into Clear Lake area, if they had slowed down enough and had studied the scene, they would have known this about the people that they were trying to reach and the community they were trying to step into. These people were all NASA engineers, okay? And it's a general timeless principle. NASA engineers don't do dress up, all right? That's just kind of who they are, all right? If he had known his community, he would have known none of them were going to go for that. And as an other engineer, a past engineer, I hate dress up, all right? I hated date parties where we had to dress up with some theme, all right? As an engineer, it despised me. I despised it, and it despised me, all right? I just gristled at the thought of it. So now even with kids' birthday parties, when the moment they have a theme or a dress up, I just establish with my wife, I am not dressing up. That's not what I do, all right? And if my friends had known the community they were trying to step into, they, if they would have just slowed down, if they would have seen, and if they would have studied, they would have realized this. That grand entrances are rarely effective, but listening and learning are always effective. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here in chapter 2. He doesn't enter the scene with this great vision and commission from a pagan king and God's supernatural work that's allowed it to this moment in time. He just stops and he slows down and he observes the city and what's happening. What would you have done, right? If you were Nehemiah at this point, you've had an elaborate plan for what could be. You've received permission in a supernatural movement of God through a pagan king to go back, and now you're back. 
would you just come in on gangbusters with a bugle call and announce to the world what was going to happen? I think I probably would have been amped up and giddy as a schoolgirl and ready to go, all right? Not Nehemiah. He stops and he slows down and he observes and he listens and it reminds me a lot of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, Paul shows up to Athens and the text tells us that now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. The Paul shows up in Athens, he's waiting for some traveling people who are going to come with him and they want to reach Athens and the first thing that he does is he just observes. He sees and he studies the people so that he can experience the problems that they're facing, not with an outsider's view of them, but with an insider's experience of them. He can identify with the people. I think it's really fascinating to me as we look at the church, as you think about cultural change, cultural renewal, the thing that the church is so poor at at times, I think, is listening and learning. We're quick to speak. If you look at Facebook dialogues and Facebook posts, there's a lot of people screaming, and I don't think anyone's listening. And sometimes the church is screaming into and into situations they don't know anything about. On the issues of race and social injustice, how often do we speak into it? Or how often as a church and as a people of God are we willing to listen and learn and understand someone else's experience? If I look at my Facebook feed, what I often find is people screaming into realities that they don't personally and experientially know anything about. They haven't stopped and they haven't listened and they haven't learned, which is why they haven't really experienced the problems that they're trying to resolve and speak into. They don't know anything that's happening. <laughs> they only know it from the outside. I think for us as a church, as you think about cultural change in the communities that bring about cultural change, one of the most significant, strategic, and influential things that we can do is that we can stop and that we can learn to listen and learn. And in the midst of that, we begin to experience a problem for ourselves. One of the things I love that our church has done, some of our staff have been a part of, is something called BCS Be the Bridge, a group that's been moving toward racial reconciliation, trying to create dialogues within our city of people from different vantage points so that we can learn to listen and learn and experience the problems that our city is facing. So often we have solutions or we're speaking into things that we don't even know it from the other person's experience and the other person's reality. And one of the things that we want to do, and one of the things that we've been talking about in this Nehemiah series is being the kinds of communities that rally together to bring about cultural change. And it starts as we listen and as we learn and as we build bridges and build relationships in. BCS Be the Bridge is one of those examples. I've asked our fellows to come up, and they're going to give you guys a couple other examples of some things that as a church and as a, as a ministry that we want to do or some things that some leaders are going to be doing that you can be a part of potentially. But again, how do we begin to build communities in which people are rallied together We begin to step into communities that we want to be a part of and make a change to? Hello, I'm Hannah. Um, and so last week, Kevin gave us the challenge to think through a way to kind of come with your community or create community in your sphere of influence. Um, but we also wanted to give you an opportunity to jump on board alongside something that's already going on. So if you are running short of ideas or running short of time, not that it has to be anything complicated, but you are welcome to join us. And so um, one of the things we will be doing is throwing a party with um, Youth Impact, which is one of the ministries here at Grace. And they also focus on at-risk youth, and so they'll be throwing their big end-of-the-year party, and so it'll be at a park, and there will be snow cones and potentially a bounce house, and so if you want to come and either serve alongside us logistically as we set up for it, or come be a part of building relationships, or come serve, you could even get some people together and bake 
brownies or something as part of your community building aspect, whatever you want to do, we would love to have you join us in that. And so you can come talk to me or David in the back um, if you have any questions. And we'll be giving you more details next week on all the specifics, but just kind of wanted to put that on your radar. Hey, um, so my name's Cole, and uh, another opportunity uh, that we wanted to offer to you guys is um, there's a group of guys that we uh, get together on Monday nights at 8 o'clock at Pebble Creek Elementary and just play basketball. Um, and we, the heart behind it is creating uh, just a really unintimidating environment uh, that we can invite people uh, within the community uh, to come join us uh, and begin to just establish relationships with people that we might not typically see. Um, so... If you're into basketball, come join us uh, Monday nights, uh, 8 o'clock at Pebble Creek Elementary. So, Thanks, brother. Again, I think the kinds of communities that bring about a cultural change are the kinds of communities that build relationships within the community and they can experience the problems that that community faces. In fact, I think for you and I to begin to experience the, the problems allows us to begin to partner in the solutions. But it's not just enough to actually experience the problems, not just from the outside, but from the inside. But when you and I begin to step into these very communities that have the very problems that we want to be a part of helping solve, all of a sudden we begin to come up with solutions that look different. When you and I look from the outside at a community that we want to see a problem solved, but we never step into the community, our solutions always look different. One of the things that I love about Nehemiah here is he steps into the community, he observes, he listens, he learns, and then when he finally speaks, he speaks in a way that shows he's partnering in the solution to the city. Notice what he says in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation that we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, that its gates are burned by fire, that he stops, he observes, he listens, and he learns, and when he finally speaks and addresses the community that he's trying to step into and bring about a solution to, notice the pronouns that he uses. I said to them, but what does he actually say? He says, uh, you see the bad situation who is in? We, that we are in. He's identified with the community that he wants to be a part of, that he wants to see change come about to. He's not an outsider but he's identified himself to that community that he wants to bring about change to and be a part of. I think the church typically doesn't do this well. Typically, we like to create a bubble of our own existence in our own bookstores, coffee shops, libraries, and schools. And then we kind of come as an outsider into a community that we want to be helpful to, and then we walk off. But we've never really immersed ourselves and stepped into the community and set up shop and lived in the very communities that we want to see change. And you can tell sometimes by our pronouns. So we think about a community that's going to bring about change. Are we thinking about change that's going to come for them or change that's going to come for us? See, pronouns say very much about your perspective on life. I know this from marriage, that even in marriage, sometimes my wife will say to me, hey, I think we need to take out the trash. I think I know what she means. She would like me to take out the trash. But in marriage, we are a collective partnership. And so we do things together, even though we may delegate and separate tasks. All right. That's what happens in marriage. Your table host will tell you that. All right. The collective we. All right. That happens in marriage. But I'll tell you, as the church looks at its identity and its existence within the community and the city that it's a part of, we often don't speak with those kinds of pronouns. We speak of us and we speak of them. And our pronouns give away the wrong view we have of our identity and our role in the city at large. It's something that Nehemiah got that we don't. We think about what we can do for them, not about what's happening for us in our city. Nehemiah gets it. 
and he gets it because you see as he identifies the problem he thinks in the course of a we. But he identifies as a we in the problem. How do you know whether you see yourself as a we in the problems of your city and your community? How do you know? One, as we think about our church, we think about our, our, the community of believers that you're a part of. Uh, if you think about problems in communities at large and you see yourself as an outsider to that community, you've already separated yourself out by pronouns. Your pronouns themselves give you away as well. But here's the big one, I think. As you think about your life, as you think about the life of the church, and as you think about the life of the city, whose welfare are you most concerned with? And what is the relationship of the welfare of your life, of the city, and of the church? What drives your heartbeat? What drives your passion? One of the verses that so many of you know, so many of you have quoted, and you use it in any decision-making moment you have in your life is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It says this, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Every single one of you loves this verse, right? You probably have it written down somewhere. If you open up your Bible to Jeremiah, you probably have it highlighted. You probably heard three sermons on it, all right? Everyone loves this idea that God has a future, that God has a hope for me, that God is concerned for my welfare. But what we don't know is the four verses that come before that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, and notice the context that highlights and makes a connection between your personal welfare and the welfare of the city and the welfare of the people of God. Notice what Jeremiah does here in chapter 29, verse 7. God, uh, Jeremiah says to the people, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So you look at Jeremiah chapter 29, you cannot think about your life and its purpose or the life of the church and its welfare apart from the welfare of the city. They go hand in hand, and it's not just an Old Testament principle. They go hand in hand. But so often as we think about our own spiritual lives, as we think about the life of the church, we think of us and we think of them and we don't unite them together because we haven't identified as a we in the community. Your pronouns give you away at times. How you look at Jeremiah 29 gives you away at times. It gives you away and it gives me away. And I feel like in the last year, this is something that some of our staff, honestly, at church have been hitting for me on. I've been getting stretched in my own thinking, and Jeremiah 29 is a great example of it. I always take 29:11 as a personal idea. Yeah, I love that God has a plan for my life. <laughs> and yet I've missed the fact that what his, God's plan for my life and for the people of God's life is always connected to the welfare of the city that we're, we've been put in exile into. It's not coincidental that you're in the Bryan College Station for four years of your college existence, maybe five, maybe six, however long it takes you, right? It's not coincidental that you're here. It's not coincidental that you are trying to find a spiritual community to be a part of, but that community ought to identify itself as a we in the city and the community that it wants to have cultural change and have an impact on. But we so often don't do that well. We so often don't do that well. And when we don't do it well, we create uh, an us versus them pronoun difference, and we also don't plan as a we. Because the next thing that Nehemiah will do is he's going to make a plan, a solution to that problem, and that solution has a we component and not an us or them component. Notice what he says here at the end of verse 17. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Verse 18, And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, Let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. It's fascinating. By the end of verse 18, 
Nehemiah has come to the city with a vision and a commission by the end of verse 18. It's about seven verses now. The city has gathered around that vision. They've picked up their resources and their efforts, and they're going to work toward that purpose. Why? I think first because Nehemiah identified himself as a part and as a member of the community. It wasn't an us-them thing for Nehemiah. Secondly, the solution that he came up with one was that was going to bring about cultural change involved the very people he was trying to make a connection to. It wasn't for them. It was with them. And for so many of us that want to have an impact in our cities and our communities, we're often thinking of what we can do for them. We're not thinking of what we can do for us or what we can do with them. It's interesting. It's actually churches and religious organizations and their efforts at community renewal that sometimes are the most toxic, okay? And here's what I mean. I, I love uh, some uh, staff gave me this uh, book that comes from uh, a guy named Robert D. Lupton. It's a book called Toxic Charity. And here's the kind of the premise of the book. He says this, giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people. When the church looks at them in the community, that there's problems that they are experiencing and they create a solution that is for them but not with them, that kind of solution is often more destructive and more toxic than anything we could have done. I want to read you guys a longer quote because it's absolutely fascinating in the early part of the book. This is what he says, the writer. He says, in over 40 years working with the urban poor in inner city Atlanta and around the globe, I've learned that it takes more than high ideals to bring about substantive change in the populations of need. In other words, Nehemiah needed more than a commission and he needed more than a vision. High ideals, a great vision is wonderful, but how do you rally people around to be a part of that solution? Most people fault the government for failed social programs, and yet frequently we embrace similar forms of disempowering charity through our kind-hearted giving. And this is what he says. This is the most condemning. And religiously motivated charity is often the most irresponsible. Well, why is that exactly? Our free food and clothing distribution encourages ever-growing handout lines, diminishing the dignity of the poor while increasing their dependency. We converge on inner city neighborhoods to plant flowers and pick up trash, bruising the pride of residents who have the capacity and the responsibility to beautify their own environment. We fly off on mission trips to poverty-stricken villages, hearts full of pity for them, and suitcases bulging with giveaway goods. And then back to the line on the board. Giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people. What is it that your heart yearns to see come about in our cities and in our communities? What is that burden? What is that conviction? What is the thing that you feel like God's called you to say, I want you to be a part of this? I love churches that have gone to the mayors of their cities and said to their mayors, what is the primary two problems that you guys cannot fix in the city and how can we as a church be a part of that? How can we be as a church a part of our city and the problems that are here? How can we identify? How can we move in the community to be a part of that? What does that look like? See, when we begin to think of us and them, we begin to see their problems and we come up with solutions that are for them, but they're not with them. And when that happens, what ends up happening is that kind of help is the most destructive thing that could happen to the community. Because you've removed their, uh, their honor, you've removed their capacity, and you've done for them what they can do for themselves. Because what solutions do that are with them is they are empowering, they are honoring, and they involve the very people in the community that we identify with to be a part of cultural change and the cultural renewal. So let me wrap up with a few questions for you guys as we kind of wrap up this morning. This, first of all, as you think about whatever thing that you're looking at in the city or the community that you feel like God's given you, are you first listening and learning? Have you stopped 
Or have you just come in with a grand entrance because you are here and everything is going to be great, right? Are you listening? Are you learning? Are you identifying and building relationships within that community so that you are one of them and one of the city and not just someone who's come in from the outside with all the good and all the help? Second of all, uh, whose welfare are you most concerned for? If you think about your life, is it you? Uh, some of us go, of course we know that's bad. <laughs> but for a lot of us, if we're honest, we have way more concern for the welfare of our church than we do the welfare of our city. And so even for us as a church staff, one of the things we've been going to do the last year is begin to think through our programs and our ministry serving opportunities, not just in the walls of our church, but in the city and the community at large. Thirdly, uh, is your plan for them or is it with them? As you think about the things that you want to do, the ways that you'd like to see cultural change and renewal, is that solution to whatever problem that you see, is it a solution that involves them, the very people that you want to reach, that empowers them to be a part of it? Are you just doing it for them and walking off as an outsider? Lastly, uh, as Kevin has been saying the last couple of weeks, what we want to do by the end of April is bring people together to build the community, to be a part of the conversation about change. Building community to be a part of the conversation that brings about a change in our city and our community. Maybe you have a vision. Do you know what the city's thinking? Do you know what the community at large is thinking? Have you stopped to listen? Have you stopped to learn? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you have so intimately and intricately tied our lives and the welfare of our own lives and our church's lives to the city. I thank you that even as a church that we are locally, uh, specifically just a stone's throw from a local high school. Uh, Lord, I thank you for some of the partnership organizations that we have in this city, that we have with this community. I thank you for what you're doing between these two relationships. Father, I pray for us as a community and the people of God that you would allow us to begin to build community within communities that we want to reach, within the very communities that we want to see change brought to, that we'd move in literally sometimes, and that we'd move in and that we'd set up our lives around people and that we'd begin to listen and we'd begin to learn as one within the community whose change that we would love to see bring about. Lord, help us to think with them, not for them. Help us to move in as an insider, not as an outsider, Lord. Father, I pray that you allow us to model after what we see in Nehemiah's life, who stops, who listens, and who then finally speaks, speaking in wheeze. And so often we don't do that. Help us to arrive in that place. Help us to see what that looks like for us and our own personal lives and as a people of God. Lord, we ask for these things through your Son, by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, with my chance to kind of jump in as a guest speaker, I also want to take this moment uh, as our semester starting to wind down and to all of our table hosts that have been serving all year. We wanted to, as a staff and as students, also wanted to extend to you guys a hearty and a special thank you. All right, so why don't we all give them a round of applause. To our table hosts, we are passing out some gift cards to you guys just to thank you for stepping into the lives of these students, loving on them. We could not do what we want to do as a college ministry apart from you guys. And I love week after week hearing stories from you table hosts, talking about your students, talking about what you're learning from them, the ways that they've stretched you. I love hearing from you students talk about your table hosts and what you've learned from them, the ways that you've grown them. I've loved seeing this multi-generational mix and how life has taken shape here at Southwood. So thank you guys, table hosts, being a part of that, making this possible. We appreciate appreciate you and could not say to you guys enough how much we are grateful for you guys serving in our midst and helping lead to be a part of this.